here. There's nothing like having a live audience, even if they're somewhat camouflaged. We still sort of remember what you used to look like. You're just a little bit older, but now we won't know because we can't tell. So masks are a good thing. Today we're going to continue our series in the book of Judges, entitled Unlikely Heroes, True Stories of Overcomers in the Old Testament. And this will be part four. So far we've looked at uh, men like Ehud and Barak, and women like Deborah and Jael. These were some of the people that God raised up to deliver Israel from the brutal oppression of their enemies. An oppression for which they themselves were to blame because the last verse of Judges says, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it's interesting to compare this verse with the refrain that we find in the opening chapters where it says in chapter 2 verse 11, Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 7, Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 12, once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1, once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So when the people were doing what was right in their own eyes, it turned out to be evil in the eyes of the Lord proving that God's ways are definitely higher than our ways. And that's one of the reasons why we gather together, so that we can learn to think more like God thinks, that we can see things from his perspective. And that's what we endeavor to do whenever we open the scripture. So let's pray. Father, thank you again for the opportunity to gather in your house. This is something we will never again take for granted. What a privilege. What a tremendous opportunity this is. The worship time this morning just really lifted our spirits. It was health to our soul. Thank you that we can be here and together experience your presence and try to understand your ways and set aside our own. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God's ways are higher than our ways, which means for us, this is a learning process. And we have a lot to learn because our so-called wisdom is often foolishness to God. As Paul asks in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? He always does, and he always will. So that means we have a lot to unlearn as we seek to gain true wisdom. Someone said wisdom is the ability to make the right choices, and we gain that wisdom by experience, and experience consists of making the wrong choices. It's a learning process. Unfortunately, the Israelites did not accumulate enough credits to graduate. They kept failing and repeating kindergarten. So when we come to chapter 6, verse 1, it says again, 
The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Here we go again. Haven't you learned anything yet? Well, all these years later, we still have the same problems. And one of the reasons is because our culture has very little sense of history and no awareness of consequences. For example, whatever happened to sin? No one talks about that anymore. It doesn't seem to be a factor because the only thing that's important is getting the most likes. So the past is irrelevant. Because in 2020, we write our own history. We devise our own morality. We make our own rules. We reimagine truth and we do what is right in our own eyes. So each year, our worldview changes. There's always another upgrade. And all of the lessons we've learned in the past are as obsolete as cassette tapes, typewriters, and slide film. And the Bible, well, it's no more, more relevant than Windows 95. All that matters is what's trending now. Each new generation thinks they are superior to all those who've gone before. And of course, they're smarter than God. But the question remains, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Just wait and God will make foolish the wisdom of the world. And that's why people who take the Bible seriously have a tremendous advantage over the short-sighted pagans and the naive idolaters that dominate the media and the internet. We have a historical perspective that enables us to avoid making foolish choices and wasting our lives suffering the long-term consequences. And speaking of consequences, it says, again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. And because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Remember, this is the promised land. This is the land God gave to his chosen people. And the only place they can survive is in caves and clefts and uh, strongholds in the mountains. The prophet Micah describes a quality of life that should be typical of those who walk in the name of the Lord. He pictures in chapter 4, verse 4, Every man will sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. Everyone sitting on the patio on their anti-gravity chair, relaxing. Well, instead of every Israelite chilling under his own vine, picking delicious grapes right off the branches, they're sitting in caves, they're hiding in catacombs, well, that's not right. I hope that's not a picture of us, fearful and withdrawn. We know that the cultural elite have put evangelicals on intellectual lockdown. We're dismissed as being unscientific. And yet our calling is to be bold and unashamed. Israel, however, was caught in a perpetual cycle of defeat and devastation. 
It says in verse 3, Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, the Malachites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and they ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. Imagine the futility. You plant your crops, you prune your olive trees, but every year at harvest, the Midianites invade like a plague of locusts and strip the orchards, leaving nothing behind but a bleak benediction of their scorched earth policy and the barren branches on a thousand hills. Some have suggested that this is where Revenue Canada gets its mission statement. Well, they're not quite that bad, right? However, I did hear someone say that they're coming up with a new simplified income tax form consisting of only three questions. Wouldn't that be great? Number one, how much did you make? Number two, how much did you spend? Number three, how much is left? Send it in. I'm not sure that uh, there are any descendants of the Midianites working for Revenue Canada. But if you think you got problems at tax time, imagine what was happening in Israel. And maybe the Israelites kept hoping that this was the last time they'd be invaded. Next year, things will improve. Maybe we'll get lucky. Maybe 2021 will be better than 2020. Well, they had seven years of crop failure. And after seven years, they got so desperate, they used their last lifeline. Verse 6 says, So Midian was so impoverished, or Midian so impoverished the Israelites, that they cried out to the Lord for help. Seven years to bring them to the point of desperation, where they began to pray. Hopefully it won't take seven years of this pandemic before we will cry out to the Lord. Well, when Israel prayed, God sent them a prophet who reminded them that this was their own fault. You didn't listen. God has had it with you. He's giving up. Well, not exactly. God didn't go that far because we know that God never does that. Philippians 1.6 reminds us that the one who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion. Without that promise, there'd be no hope. So then, after this prophet, verse 11 says, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak at Ophrah. See, the book of Judges is very contemporary. We've already met Barak. Here's Oprah. Maybe we'll even run into Hillary somewhere. Who knows? The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah, where Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now, this individual had a much higher rank than a prophet. In fact, he wasn't even an angel. He's called the angel of the Lord because they had no other way of describing him. But this is not a heavenly ambassador who has delegated authority to speak on behalf of his superiors. This is someone who speaks with his own authority which means that this is the Son of God in one of his Old Testament appearances. Because they prayed for help, God himself enters their situation 
to deal with it personally. That's impressive. And yet we have the same privilege. Matthew 28, beginning at verse 18, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and I will be with you always to the very end of the age. The one who is with us is the one who has all authority. He's with us in every problem we face. So God, get him, sick him, bam, pow, splat. Destroy the Midianites by the power of your mighty hand. And he could have done that, but God typically chooses to act indirectly, often through a most unlikely hero. So the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak where Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. So here's the Son of God sitting under an oak, just chilling, which is supposed to be the posture of the chosen people. He's sitting under a tree wearing a t-shirt that says, keep calm and chive on. He's very relaxed. Not like that nervous little fellow in the wine press who's trying to thresh some of the wheat that's been left behind after the last Midianite raid. A wine press is about the size of maybe a large hot tub. And can you picture Gideon kind of peeking out every few minutes, poking his head up like a gopher, trying to see if the coast was clear? Verse 12, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Well, that didn't make any sense at all. But sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, Why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. If God is with us, then why are we in this mess? Why has the enemy triumphed over us? We could be asking some of those same questions. Why is our culture censoring the truth and celebrating immorality? Why are bad things happening to good people? Based on our circumstances, what is the evidence that God is with us? These are tough questions. And they could have been debating that for the rest of the day. It's what they do at seminary. But there was something far more important than trying to figure out the complexities of injustice. Gideon, what would you rather have? An answer or a solution? An answer might satisfy your curiosity, but it won't change anything. If you want a solution, then you don't need an explanation. It's time for action. Verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Well, this has to be the first mistake God made in the Bible. He's called Gideon, mighty warrior. He said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel. 
Well, I'm sorry, but you've got the wrong number. There's no one here who fits that description. Check your GPS. If, if, I think you may want the big house down the road. They might have what you're looking for. Mighty warrior, go in the strength you have and save Israel. Obviously, God hadn't vetted Gideon's references. Otherwise, he would have known better. In Gideon's vocational aptitude test, mighty warrior was his lowest score. Mighty warrior? Gideon? That's like calling Woody Allen Mr. Universe or Barney Fife commander of a SWAT team or Gomer Pyle a five-star general. That's like referring to Mr. Bean as the UFC super welterweight world champion. Mighty warrior? It's ridiculous. Verse 15, but Lord Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Do you ever feel like that? That you're just kind of a nobody? Our culture may see you as a nobody, but that also makes you God's first-round draft pick. Because as Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 26, Brothers, think of what you were when God called you. Not many were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God shows the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God shows the weak things of the world to shame the strong so that no one would boast before him. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, you are who God says you are. You cannot be defined by our culture. You are who God says you are. In fact, somebody should write a song about that. You know, many years ago, God called me to be a preacher, which is ridiculous. It is so unlikely. You can almost laugh your head off. Me speaking to a crowd of people? There is no way. I'm far too insecure. That could get really embarrassing. Public speaking was always my greatest fear. But God decided to use my weakness as my vocation. And there's a lot of pastors who will tell you the same thing. God simply ignored my strengths. In fact, I don't even remember what they were. He decided to use my weakness. You are who God says you are. That's why trying to find yourself is an exercise in futility. Because the only person who knows who you really are is the one who wrote your DNA, who made you unique, who created you. Find him and you'll discover what your best life is all about. You are who God says you are. The media may dismiss Christians as being narrow-minded and irrelevant, but God sees you differently. You are the light of the world. You may have very little influence 
in this godless generation, but in the spiritual realm, you are a person to be reckoned with. Because our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil. And in that, in that battle... You have a higher power because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. In fact, when you humble yourself and submit to God, you have the power to resist the devil and force him to flee. That makes you someone to be reckoned with. You are a person of consequence. So don't underestimate yourself. But Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. I am the least of the lowliest. Well, that's a very good point, Gideon. I think you've backed God into a corner here. Maybe uh, you've put him in check. Verse 16, the Lord answered, I will be with you, and you... You will strike down the Midianites as if they were but one man. That's called checkmate. Don't try to play chess with God. And so Gideon's run out of excuses. Now what? Well, Gideon finally remembers his manners. Hospitality. You need to show your guest some hospitality. I have to offer you something. Verse 19, Gideon went in and prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour he made bread without yeast. If you got a guest, you have to get them something to eat. At least soup and a sandwich. Well, some soup and some sandwich. Gideon boils a goat and uses 88 cups of flour to bake bread. Ever done that? That's ambitious. I mean, these are Cobb's bakery numbers. And how long does it take to boil a goat without a pressure cooker? Gideon spent the rest of the day in the kitchen, probably like Martha, Martha, distracted and worried and upset about many things. But he could have spent all that time talking to the Son of God, listening as he revealed what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no mind has conceived. What an opportunity he had. But Gideon was too busy. Just like us. Oh, we are busy people. I wonder how much we have missed because... We were too busy. God, I have to put you on hold. <clears throat> but at least this is going to be the best tasting broth ever. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, and pour out the broth. What? <laughs> Are you serious? I don't know how Gideon felt, 
but I would have had a meltdown. But this took all day. So pour it out. Do you realize how much wood I had to chop for the fire? Start pouring. But that was my last goat. Pour it out. And Gideon did so. And with the tip of the staff that was in his hand, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire flared up from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. Wow. This really wasn't about a meal. This became so much more. It became a sacrifice. This wasn't a waste. This was an act of worship. The fire flared up from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. It was kind of a reminder to Gideon that all of his effort, all of his energy, all of his expenditures equaled nothing. Because it was going to take a lot more than human potential to transform defeat into victory. The question was not, how can I save Israel? The answer was, I will be with you. And that's when Gideon had an epiphany, a glimpse of glory. And it says, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, ah, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Gideon finally realized who he was dealing with. Finally, this feeble farmer got his theology sorted out. God was indeed with them. He had not given up. And that's when Gideon found out who he was. I am who he said I am. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. Well, now that Gideon's got his worldview turned right side up, the next step was obvious. Verse 24. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. Verse 25. The same night the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal, and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this bluff. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. Gideon's first assignment is very interesting. It wasn't to deal with the Midianite problem at all. Because that was only a symptom the root of this disaster was the idolatry of Israel. This was about their inner life. You see, to be an overcomer, you first of all have to deal with the unresolved issues in your heart. Because the human heart is an idol manufacturing plant. That's why the hardest challenge we'll ever face is to destroy our sacred idols. Our idols? Us? <laughs> We're too sophisticated for that kind of superstition. Oh yeah? What's in your wallet? The card is my master. I shall not want. 
It makes me lie down on a king-size mattress. It leads me beside the still waters of my new swimming pool. It restores my credit rating. Yea, though I walk through the valley of debt, I will fear no foreclosure. Surely my mutual funds will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in a Phoenix condo forever. Maybe make that can more because of uh, travel restrictions. Jesus talked about this. He said in Matthew 6, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. But store up treasures in heaven, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. Idolatry is alive and well in 2020, and it has many names. Sometimes it's called progressive or political correctness. It's called the right side of history. In the U.S., it's called Make America Great Again. It's called the Second Amendment to the Constitution, the right to bear arms. It's called America is the best country in the world. There's so much idolatry wrapped up in some of those ideas. There are so many forms of idolatry. It can be called evolution because it eliminates God. You cannot believe both evolution and creation. They're mutually exclusive, just like you can't serve both God and money. Now we know that evolution is a process that God created. But when they take it to the furthest extent where it just eliminates God altogether, then it becomes an idol. And wherever there is idolatry, there is a lot of pressure to conform and a lot of conflict. Verse 27, so Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning, when the men of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished and the Asherah pole beside it cut down. And they asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The men of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he has broken down Baal's altar. You see, because after seven years of defeat and futility, there were a lot of people in Israel who still loved their idols. Some had cried out to the Lord for help, but many were still loyal to Baal. And for Gideon, the problem was compounded by the fact that his father was the owner and operator of the local idolatry franchise. So this was a blatant repudiation of everything his family stood for. Oh no, what are people going to say? And what do you have to say for yourself, Joash? Your holiness, high priest of Baal? Your son is an outlaw, criminal. This is a hate crime. Verse 31, but Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. Wow. Talk about a turning point. You can even smell the burning rubber from that unexpected U-turn. 
Joash was definitely going against the flow on a busy one-way street. It seemed so sudden. Where did this change of heart come from? Well, it really wasn't that sudden. Seven years of offerings to Baal. Seven years of disillusionment. Joash had lost respect for that useless idol, and his words mock that demonic deception. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself. Wow, good for you. In the spiritual realm, courage is contagious. Gideon's bold act of religious vandalism awakened something in his father who saw in Gideon what he hadn't seen for a long time, a zeal for the true God of Israel. This is what Joash should have done. What he wanted to do, what he was hoping that maybe somebody else would do for him. Verse 32 says, So that day they called Gideon Jerubal, saying, Let Baal contend with him, because he broke down Baal's altar. The outlaw had become a hero. He was given the name, the man who beat Baal. And if Baal can be beaten, then the Midianites will not be much of a problem anyway. You see, the most important victories that take place are not what happens in the culture wars. It's the ones that happen, first of all, in our own hearts. That's why in the Psalm 139, David asks, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's interesting that David points out two problems, offensive ways. God, is there anything offensive in me? And then he says, test my anxious thoughts. Anxiety is disloyalty to the Lord. If God is with us, if he is in control, we do not have to be anxious. We can be confident in him. So what's happening in our hearts? What place does God have in our hearts? We are in terrible circumstances. We've been in those for months it hasn't changed anything about God. He's still with us. Is our faith still rooted in him? Is our hope still in him? That's one of the reasons why we come to the Lord's table, to remind ourselves of what Jesus did on the cross for us. And through that, we have victory. And because of that, we confess any offensive way in us and anything that creates anxiety because we can trust him. We don't have to be fearful. Father, we thank you so much that uh, this is something that gives us the opportunity to uh, experience once again and claim the victory you've already given us. We need that victory now more than ever. And we just affirm that through Jesus Christ, it applies to exactly what we're going through right now. And we just want to confess anything offensive in us 
as we come to your table. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare to receive communion this morning, I will uh, just walk us through a little bit because it's a little bit different this morning. Uh, we have these prepackaged uh, communion cups. There's the, the wafer for the, for the bread is actually in the top layer. Uh, so if you just have to peel back just a very thin, clear layer to, to, uh, to access the wafer. Sometimes people uh, accidentally pull the whole thing apart, but there is a little thin layer that just allows you to be able to access the wafer. And uh, so you can... If you haven't grabbed one yet, um, there, there are some still at the, in the foyer uh, and, uh, so that you can access that and participate as well. would like to mention, though, that if you, we did give everyone uh, a, a communion cup, and so if you have kids, uh, I'll just, we'll leave it into your hands as parents to, to navigate that um, and uh, whether or not that's an appropriate, um, uh, whether that's appropriate for you and your family and your kids at this time as well. Also, we'd just like to mention that uh, the, the communion cup is, is we are receiving communion uh, not as, as Baptists, but as followers of Jesus. And, and so this may not be your home church, and that's okay. But if you love Jesus and, and uh, would like to, to, uh, to receive communion in that way, we would certainly welcome that and invite you to, to partake in that way. Um, if, however, you do not have a relationship with Jesus, maybe this is a great opportunity for you to, to make that decision to... to uh, to start following Jesus and commit your life to Him. And uh, lastly, I would like to encourage you that if you have relationships in your life that, that are unreconciled, that are, uh, there is just a, a high level of enmity between you and another person, we just ask that maybe you would just hold off on receiving communion until that relationship is, is uh, healed and reconciled so that you can take it with a, with a, a clean heart. As, uh, as Sig was sharing this morning, I was uh, just, just felt again, just felt really burdened for for our church, and so what I would like just to to um, wasn't planning on doing this, but if you would like to pray or like to receive prayer after the service, I'm just going to be at the front and and we'll conclude our service. But if you would like to pray, uh, we'd just love to do that. And I know that there's lots of things going on in people's lives, and uh, whether it's healing, whether it's just, uh, you know, as Sig mentioned, anxiety, whether it's, there's just things going on, and you would like prayer for that, we, I would love to do that with you. And, and so um, maybe if, if you're a parent and you just want to just pray for your kids, uh, that's something that we would love to do as well. So that'll be available after the service. This, this morning, though, I would like to, uh, again, as Sig was sharing, he, he made the comment, are you looking for an answer or for, for a solution? And I thought that is a very profound statement, especially in, in relation to our sin. Are we looking for an answer to our sin problem, or are we looking for a solution to our sin problem? And, and that's why we receive communion, is, is an acknowledgement that Jesus is the solution to our sin problem. And so I wanted to read Psalm 93 for us this morning. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their pounding waves. More than the sound of many waters, than the mighty breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your testimonies are fully confirmed. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Would you pray with me? Lord, we 
thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your majesty, your strength, that, that it's those characteristics, it's your holiness that allow us to be able to come to you, Jesus, and acknowledge you as our Savior, that, that you, you died for each of us, that you became the solution for our sin problem, that we would be able to, to be reconciled to you and, and have a relationship with you, Jesus. So Lord, as we receive communion this morning, that, that we, we pray that you we would help us, that you'd help us to, to keep our eyes on you, God. That, that we would be strengthened, that we'd be clothed and girded with your strength now. That we would be able to, to put away our idols and see you as our Lord. Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen. The night that Jesus enjoyed his last supper with his disciples, he took the bread and broke it and said, This is Christ's body, this is my body given for you. Take any. After he broke the bread, he took the wine and said, This is a new covenant in my blood. Take and drink. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up, and they're going to lead us in one last song as we close our service this morning. But as, I, as they come up, I'm just going to conclude our time, or I'll, I'm just going to pray one, more, one last time as we continue to worship. Lord, we are, we are grateful for the time that you give us together, that uh, as Siga said, we, we, we won't take this for granted. This is a gift that, that we have to be able to, to worship together. And, uh, and so, Jesus, I pray that this morning that you would help us to, to reflect on that, to reflect on your faithfulness, that you continue to walk with us. That as we worship, that we would go uh, worshiping you. We pray this in your name. Amen. I'll just ask you to stand once again so we can sing our closing song together. Keep brought me up. 